feeling of, of not being quite human. Uh-huh. How do you narrate yeah. not being, feeling like you have been treated as inhuman, not human, not feeling like you are human? Yeah. Having day-to-day survival, which is not even only just getting food, but really day-to-day, minute-to-minute survival um, as the only narratable experience because how do you narrate not being human? This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Amy Schumann, who has selected two stories of waiting from Charles Rutten Escher's Memoir in Progress about his experiences in Rwanda in the early 1990s and then later as a refugee. Amy will give us more context for the stories before she reads them. Amy will read the first story, Waiting to be Arrested, and she and I will discuss it. Then Amy will go on and read the second story, Waiting to be Released, and we'll discuss that and make some comparisons with Waiting to be Arrested. Amy Schumann is professor of English at Ohio State University and a core faculty member of Project Narrative. Amy is recipient of OSU's Distinguished Scholar Award and its Alumni Distinguished Teaching Award. Amy has done important research in the fields of folklore, sociolinguistics and conversational narrative, human rights, and disability studies. She's the author of Storytelling Rights, The Uses of Oral and Written Texts by Urban Adolescents, Other People's Stories, Entitlement Claims and the Critique of Empathy, and with Carol Bomer, Rejecting Refugees, Political Asylum Asylum in the 21st Century. Amy has been a Guggenheim Fellow and a Fellow at the Hebrew University Institute for Advanced Studies in Jerusalem. So, Amy, why did you choose these stories of waiting from Charles Rutenash's memoir to read and discuss today? So I've been working on narrative, the narratives told by political asylum seekers for the last 20-plus years. My colleague, Carol Bomer, and I um, have been working with asylum seekers. She's a sociologist and a lawyer, so the work really started with her. She uh, takes cases that are given to her by lawyers that she knows, and she works pro bono in helping asylum seekers. So we've worked with several asylum seekers, um, and we've come to learn that narrative is really the core of the success of their cases. Mostly, they only have their narratives. They don't have any other documentation to prove that they deserve political asylum. Carol left Ohio State many years ago and then taught at Dartmouth and at King's College in London. And she's then continued with cases in the northeast of the United States and in, and in the U.K., uh-huh. Charles Rutanesha, um, who I met in the 90s, had come to Ohio State to get a degree in law at the Moritz College of Law, and we became friends. And in the last many years, uh, it's actually been about 10 years, we've been, I've been recording his stories because he wants to write his memoir. Right. 
So I'll tell a little bit more about him. But first, um, I selected these particular stories because I'm interested in different kinds of narratives, especially the narratives of flight, escape, capture, and Mm -hmm. waiting narratives. And and um, and Charles is, gives us some very good examples of, of waiting narratives right. that I think we know very little about. So Charles was, um, as, as we'll hear in his story, but I'll give you some context. So before the genocide in Rwanda, uh, Tutsi were being arrested. The Tutsi in the north, there were Tutsi in the very northern part of the country who were rebels, long, long, sto- long historical story. And at, at this particular point in time, Tutsi all over the country were um, if finding themselves being arrested for no reason at all. They weren't associated with the rebels in the north. So, um, so this is before the genocide, and Charles was uh, arrested, as we'll learn, and imprisoned. And so that's a big part of his narrative, and he feels very strongly that we don't understand much about that period about uh-huh. and what uh-huh. it was like to yeah. be imprisoned, in part because not a lot of people survived, and those who did survive aren't in a position to tell their stories. Right, right, yeah. Okay, well, good. Um, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know before you read the first one? So um, I'm interested as a narratologist in questions of chronotopes or questions, questions of temporality, and if we recall Tolstoy's now famous comment that all great literature is one of two stories, a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town, we, most narratologists would find that overly simplified. Right. But I think one of the things that's particularly left out of that is narratives of waiting. Some okay. feminists have mm-hmm. called attention to the fact that even in the famous stories of uh, of men going on journeys, there are women waiting at home. Right, right. So, or women can go on journeys. Or women go on journeys, and and right, right, But but there are lots of critiques of that, but really not a lot is understood about it. And as you and I will talk about today, um, it's difficult to narrate waiting, mm-hmm. and that's maybe part of it. We don't have a lot of examples of it, and I'm hoping that we'll consider how these different kinds of space time. Um, correspondences, things yeah. that happen in a specific place and time, form different kinds of chronotopes. And then we want to ask the question, two questions. First is, can they be considered as different genres, as Bakhtin famously suggested, that chronotopes point to different kinds of genres? But second, um, uh, the thing that really interests me at, in my political asylum work is that the political asylum hearings focus primarily on questions of space and time. And the hearing officers consider space to be very locatable and um, identifiable, even though it may not be. Mm -hmm. And time they consider to be less specific. And they focus so much time on these questions of what happened to you, how long did it happen, when did you leave, uh, how how many times were you arrested? Time-related questions. Yeah. And, and I'm always puzzled by the fact that they think that these action-related nar- narrations will lead them to an assessment of whether right. somebody has a well-founded fear, 
which is an mm-hmm. emotion, right. of returning to their home country. So I'm interested also in temporality as it guides us through thinking both about action and emotion. emotion. Okay, that's great. Terrific. Okay, so um, here's Amy Schumann reading Waiting to be Arrested. So Charles is, I should say, a native speaker, um, both of Kiwanda and also of French. So he spoke that he, he's, he, he and, and I've worked on this together, but he first told the story orally to me, and then um, we transcribed it, and then we worked together on the written version of it. So what you're hearing is somewhat edited and, um, and not in his native language. It's in English. I was not surprised to be arrested. Between October 1 and October 23 could be a book by itself. It was a hell. When they attacked, the government put roadblocks every 50 meters with military in full combat. We used to have buses that would take us to work. During the day, there would be soldiers, troops, police, intelligence. They would come everywhere to businesses, ministries, and the neighborhood. All day, they were arresting people. During the day, we worked 7 to 5, and we had a break from 12 to 1. At every minute, we were waiting because so many of our colleagues were arrested at the workplace. On the way back home, there were intelligence, police, and military that would stop at every bus stop. For example, they would say, Is Charles Rutanesha here? And you had to show your ID. If you tried to hide, it would be terrible. On your way back home, you expected to be arrested. When you got home, until four in the morning, you expected to be arrested. It was mental torture. As you started to fall asleep, you could feel they could be coming, and you would be arrested. At a certain point, I said, I wanted to be arrested. I would just turn myself in so I would have peace of mind. I wouldn't have the constant fear of being arrested. When the time came, it was the 2nd of October, I was arrested by intelligence people from the president's office. They said, who is Charles Rutanesha? Okay, come. And inside the car, there were two more people. We left the ministry and we went to another place. They arrested two more people. They said, where do you live? We went to my house and they went all through it. They searched everywhere. They looked at pictures and asked, who is this? By the time they left, it was a mess. The presidential guards tortured us. I still have the cloth I wore that day. I still have the shirt I wore that day. We were beaten up that night, and then we went to sleep in some small jail. There were a hundred people in a small room. In the morning, we went for questioning. They said, We would like to know about the king in Washington who is supposed to get married, and you were supposed to be his best man. I was not even born at the time of that king. It was just a formality to have something to write in my file. They made me write a statement. I wrote three pages. They phoned in the evening and put me in jail in the prison called 1930. Okay, great. So, um, you know, a couple of things that stand out to me, and then you can comment and we go from there, um, is that we sort of start with this summary statement, right? I was not surprised to be arrested, right? So we know somehow where, where we're going, waiting to be arrested, but we know there's, he's going to be arrested, but there's also the, um, you know, the, the emotion, right? Uh, I was not surprised. Um, so it's an interesting and I think very kind of 
effective way to begin uh, this story. Um, and then we go to between October 1 and, and October 23rd could be a book by itself. So we get this single event of being arrested and then we immediately go back and then we, we're, he's going to tell us about you know this whole three-week three period or so. Um, and then we get uh, it was a hell and so on and we get a, a kind of you know what Jeanette would call iterative narration about you know many things uh, uh, happening, but being narrated once, right? Uh, and then in the second half, we get uh, more singulative the the day of the arrest, right? Um, so anyway, you know um, what's what stands out to you in that in that in this kind of initial big picture handling of time? Well, part of what stands out to me is the. Um is, is the generalized description during mm-hmm. the day there would be, they would come everywhere, that, that we, and that it's, it's plural, we were waiting. Okay, yep. So we have this very generalized picture, and he's not particularly singled out. Okay, good, yeah, yeah, right, right. And so in that sense, his own experience becomes a collective uh, kind of experience. Uh, and you know, also from the perspective of you know waiting and narrative action, right? We have this um, you know, there's an instability, right? They're waiting to be arrested, and this is what the day is like, right? And and so on, right? Right. And I'm interested in how these diff- shifts in in pronouns help to shift the footing of the narrative. That is who we are as listeners being aligned mm-hmm. to, who he's aligned with. And that also constitutes an instability, this shift. Yes. And then when we finally get at the end to the eye, we will have really shifted, creating um, this instability of footing. Yes, good. And then the other, you know, important pronoun, obviously, maybe it's just, you know, just pointing out the obvious, but the they, right? So there's a we and the they, they would come every day, right? And, uh and then, then we have the shift to the second person. Um, you know, after they would say, "Is Charles Rodonesha here?" Uh, and you had to show your ID if you tried to hide. You know, again, right. it's, it's not it's not the singular uh, uh, first person singular. Right. I had to show my ID. You had to show your ID. Right, right. even though it's his name. Yeah. Right? right. So right. he is named, and the f- immediate following sentence, as you said, is. You had to show your ID if you tried to hide on your be- way back home. Yeah, right? yeah. So again, the collective, uh, right? He's re- he's not, um, you know. And for this first half of the of the of the story, he's really resisting being an I, right? After the first sentence, um, it's it's all about the we, as you're saying. Yeah. Um, okay. Then, though, right? I think we have, you know, an interesting turning point in that way. Um, uh, it was mental torture. As you start to fall asleep, you felt they could be coming, and you would be arrested. Then, then the turning point. At a certain point, I said I wanted to be arrested. Right. right so we've switched to I here. Yeah. And also at a certain point. Yes. So we've switched from this generalized fear and panic and desperation of waiting to a certain point and that temporality i think is very interesting at a certain point i wanted to be arrested i had enough in the sense is yeah. what he's saying and we know what 
I'd had enough means. That registers for us. It points to an emotional state. Right, right, right. And in a way, it's, it's, it is a little, on the one hand, it's surprising. On the other hand, it's, it's, it's logic, you know, emotionally logical. That is, in a sense, if we're thinking about, again, the narrative movement, that there's this instability, right? So, and the instability is they want to arrest me and us, and I don't want to be arrested. Right. <laughs> we try to avoid that, right? But then the shift to, you know, all right, I, at a certain point, I wanted to be arrested. Right, which right. comes takes us back to I was not surprised to be arrested, the very mm-hmm. first yeah. sentence, right? Yeah, right. Good. And so uh, this... Um, this certain point where he said, I wanted to be arrested, I would just turn myself in so I would have peace of mind, is not referring to something that happened. And that interests me greatly, right? So this is not, even though he says at a certain point, uh-huh. and he said it, and it, we, right. have, we, have, we have all kinds of reasons to think this really happened, right? We have at a certain point, and we have him using reported speech, I said I wanted not just yeah. I thought, but I said, yeah. which are very definite, and yet these are not pointing to things that happen. These are pointing only to emotion, right? Well, or to to an internal action, to an right. internal action. Right. I right. said I wanted to be right. arrested. Right. Right. This was a, this was right. a switch in me in a way. Yeah, right. right. So I would have peace of mind. Right, 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 right. right. Then the interesting thing, and again, in terms of the action, is I would I would just turn myself in this hypothetical or subjunctive. Right, but he doesn't turn himself in, right? Instead, they they come for him, right? Right. Um, I was arrested by intelligence people, um, so uh, you know that's interesting too, right? It, it, right. Um, and maybe there's a gap there, like, all right, well, why didn't you turn yourself in? Was it that they acted, you know, again in terms of time, they acted before you could do that, or you know, yes. just how? Well, this is one of the things that really interests me in. These kind of narratives generally, but I think works differently in a waiting narrative, which is the template that we might impose on the experience of, of anticipating violence. Uh-huh. And the problem that, uh, that, that Charles would have he, – he, by the way, had a Fulbright to come to Ohio State, and so he had a visa – he was able to eventually leave. Yeah. But if somebody comes as a as a applicant for political asylum, yeah. the template that gets imposed immediately is why didn't you leave? Yeah. If you were afraid, why didn't you leave? And this is a question that Holocaust scholars have explored. Lawrence Langer, for example, um, t- talks about these spurious questions that lead to spurious templates. Uh-huh. The idea that in that moment that you might have known that maybe yeah. you should leave. It's only retrospectively. Right. So that gap you're pointing to is related to that template of the present template being imposed on what people knew. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's really an, an epistemological problem. Right. You know, what did you know at the time? Right. And so he wants to be arrested, but he didn't know yeah. that he would be arrested right. then. Right, and I think what you're pointing to, too, is the way in which the... You know, people receiving the asylum narratives can't get out of their own, exactly. You know, temporal location, right? We all know now that you should have left. I mean, you it would have been wiser left, to right. have left, right? But there was going to be a genocide in two years. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Why, what were you sticking around for? <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. So that. Yeah. That. That. That's a really good point. I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So then, uh, I think a couple of other things. Uh, 
it just in terms of the what Charles is doing with um, dialogue and voice, mm-hmm. right? So the first time we have, they would say, "Is Charles is Charles Rudnesha here?" Right. Right. Um, now they say, "Who is Charles Rudnesha?" Okay, come. Right. Right. So um, there's an interesting sort of uh, presupposition. <laughs> Uh, like in the first one, they know who Charles Rutenish, uh, they seem to know, and they want to know, is he here? And now it's all, who is he? You know, the, the identity thing. And then also the addition of, you know, okay, come, right? Um, so that's, you know, any thoughts on, on what's going on with, with the well, dialogue and the you know, voice? This is interpolation as we know it, right? That you're being singled out. This is the mm-hmm. call that comes for you. Yeah. And we have the idea that the call might come for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is, uh, is Charles Rutanesha here on the bus? Or, but that was just, okay, oh, no, we're not going to ask you to come. That was just yeah. show us your ID. Yeah, yeah. And then we get the call. The, 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 this is the moment, the right. call. You are being targeted. This, this call, Charles, is for you. Okay, come. Yeah. And so it's this mandated right. come that, yeah. uh, that changes everything. Yeah. And then we get what's interesting is after that, we, we, we then get a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Yes. Inside the car, there were two more yes. people. Right. We left the ministry. We went to another place. They arrested two more people. We don't know how many people were arrested at his place of work. Mm-hmm. Maybe just him. We don't know. But, or, or, you know, th- th- so there's yeah. this very specific, very different um, reported speech, you know, when they say, um, where do you live? Yeah. Uh, and so we're now in a very specific action-based part right. of the narrative. Right, right. And I think there's also this interesting sort of continuation of the collective, um, even as he's moving to his individual experience, right? Because, you know, there were two more in the car. Well, there were two more people who've been arrested, right? Right. And then they arrested two more, and then we went, right? Right. So this interesting, you know, the collective remains... Even as he's he has shifted focus more to his experience, right? Right. right. Um, you know, we were beaten up that night. Um, right. The you know, the presidential yeah. guards tortured us. Yeah. Um, and so he's very much experiencing all of this as a we, mm-hmm. as a collective we. Yeah. Um, the you uh, we could return to that later is is very interesting. You know that on your way back home you expected to be arrested. The you is not the same as. It's the same group of people, right? But it operates differently in the narrative because we're we're only able to talk about these two excerpts today. But the rest of the narrative describes his experience in prison, uh-huh. which is definitely a collective we, where yeah, he feels yeah. that he is yeah. among these other people, all trying to survive very, very horrible circumstances, day to day. Again, mm-hmm. the balance of the immediate. Yeah. day the the long waiting but i think we see that here too where um where he's identified as a we and then back to himself right right i, I still have the cloth i wore that day which is right. retrospective right? right that's that's today right. telling the narrative that's right yeah i mean that that there's an interesting shift right from his perspective at the time of the action right to his perspective at the time of the telling, right? I, I still have it's, it. It's a tense shift, too, right? Right. Uh, in the present, I still have it. Right. right. Yeah. 
Um, and that, that I think, also starts to connect to some of the way in which, the, you know, the affect and the emotion is being handled, right? Right. So, you know, like with the, the first question, is Charles here, right? And you had to show your ID. If you had to hide, it would be terrible. You expected to be arrested. You got home. You expected to be arrested. It was mental torture, right? That the fact that it's simply a question of, uh, I mean, what I think it's interesting what it, it kind of asks the audience to do, right? To to make the connections between the um, you know simple question, uh, are you present? You know, it's like roll call or something, and then the consequences of that, right? Which he which he tells. I think interestingly, in a combination of action and emotion, right? Um, and then here, you know, when we come back to it, uh, okay, come and so on. Then we get the fears that he's kind of expressed. We see why he was afraid because they they get realized in action. You know, they beat us. They right all that all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, Okay, then we get the other, you know, the third sort of um, voicing from they, right? We would like to know about the king in Washington who was supposed to get married and you were supposed to be his best man, right? Right, what a huge counterfactual, <laughs> which is another instability, right, introduced into this narrative that they have to come up with some crime yeah. that he's done, yeah. and so they come up with the crime of having been the best man of the king yeah. who was married before Charles was born. Right, right. And it yeah. doesn't matter. So the right. irrelevance of this counterfactual dropped into this narrative accentuates the entire sense of um, the arbitrariness of the arrest, right. right? That he knew he was going to be arrested, but we never find, and we don't seem to be asking, why were you arrested? Yeah. What did they want you for? Mm-hmm. But he's telling us that there was no crime. Yeah, that, right. That, it's, and that's why he wants to write this book. I think that it's important to him to describe what it's like to be rounded up right. because he's Tutsi right. at a moment when there is some fear of Tutsis. Exactly. For no reason, actually. Yeah, no. Why, um, he's being arrested because he's Tutsi. He's being arrested because he's right. Tutsi, and that's the, it. And the questions, right, uh, the... Is Charles here, right? right. They're all about is Tutsi identity, right? Right. Who is Charles Rudinesson? Okay, come. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so that, that Right. And so but okay. to have that blatant counterfactual yeah. here. Right. Usually what we might have is a counter narrative that is something that could be substantiated and then you say, No, that wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. But something that couldn't even be possible. Right. Is it, it, it's intensifying. Right. The arbitrariness. Yeah. And then I think, you know, as we're coming to the end, right, it's interesting that he immediately calls them out on the, you know, the absurdity of the question, right? Uh, and he knows it was just a formality to have something right in my file. And then we, we sort of go to simply reporting of events, right? We don't, we don't have right. the kind of emotion that we have earlier. Right. Right. Um, they made me write a statement. I wrote three pages. They phoned in the evening and put me in jail in the prison called 1930. Right. So, what do you make of that? I mean, that we—he's—he's he's just going back to the events. You know, this was a puzzle to me, and it could be—you know—that I don't know enough about what the difference is between jail and prison, and I had to ask. 
but so I'm going to explain now from the mm-hmm. questions that I asked. Yeah, good. Um, and Charles explained that the jail was really terrible, and being, mm-hmm. and and the and the and the presidential guard were cruel, and that he was relieved. Actually, we get in the later narrative, much later, uh-huh. so I couldn't read it today. Yeah. But he's relieved actually to be taken out of that situation and put in the 1930 prison. Okay. It's mm-hmm. terrible, and there's lice and all kinds of bed bugs and uh-huh. terrible, terrible situation. Not enough food. Not enough bathrooms. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. waiting and acts another kind of waiting. Right. They they time their days, the prisoners, by waiting for hours to use the two latrines that uh, you know thousands right. of people are lining up yeah. for. So th- there's this um, this return to action. Just the action here is uh, a, a kind of. Um, uh, just let down of of the the suspense is over. Okay, yeah. And now we're going to right. go to a different place mm-hmm. to the 1930 prison, which, in my universe, might be worse. Yeah, prison, but in his universe, if you know the context, mm-hmm. jail was worse, okay. and those pres- yeah. the presidential guard was worse. Yeah, yeah. Okay. One last thing I want to ask you about this before we move on to the next one is that they made me write a statement. I wrote three pages. Right. There's a kind of interesting specificity. Yeah, there that he knows, but we don't get content, right? Right. Um, you know, it's a kind of a, a gap that opens up. Well, what did you write? You know, or or is that a long or is that a short yeah. statement? Right. 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 We know right. that he's a very educated. By this time in his book, we know mm-hmm. that he's very educated. Yeah. Um, and that uh, that he's been very well educated his whole life. So uh, he benefits from being an yeah. erudite yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. So we could then probably yeah. I mean, infer I think that, that. Right. Well, the one thing that we get is that it didn't matter, right? No, I that's mean, right. You, I, I wrote three pages. I wrote three pages. I'm, I'm going to jail. You know. Yeah. Who knows where that those yeah. three pages are? Yeah. Right. They right. might be in an archive somewhere. Right. Actually, I'd like to ask him that. Yeah. 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 That would be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on this one before we, um, you know, I mean, just to, to maybe come back to the idea of the waiting right so we have the we have the waiting we have the all right now i, I want to be arrested that we get the story of that and then we sort of end with uh, him going into the prison where we know that more waiting will uh, you know the, the, the next phase of the narrative is more waiting right, right. Yeah. yeah i think we yeah. can return to the questions that we've just raised later after we talk about okay. the next part but we want to think what we've learned about what a waiting narrative looks like. Okay, excellent. All right, so let's go ahead and why don't you read the waiting to be released from prison. It had been more than a week since almost all the prisoners had been released. This is over a year later. So it had been more than a week since all the prisoners had been released. However, I was still in prison without any explanation from the relevant authority. Every day that passed, I was concerned about the reasons behind this delay. Was it a simple bureaucracy delay or something else that I did not know about? In either case, I was in no position to know what was going on. In the meantime, I was going through a very unbearable situation once I realized that almost all my prison companions had been released and I was left behind with a few comrades. Also, after the mass release of our friends, the prison's administration transferred a good number 
of non-political prisoners from their quarters to fill in the empty political prisoners' dormitories where we were housed. After my fiancé, Alphonsine, realized that most prisoners had been released and that I was still in prison, despite the general release order, she decided to go and confront the general prosecutor, who was in charge of releasing the prisoners. She told his assistant that she wanted an appointment to meet the general prosecutor. The day of the appointment, she was quickly invited into the general prosecutor's office to meet him. Once inside the office, the general prosecutor asked her the reason she had requested his assistant to see him. Alphonsine explained to him that I had been in prison since October 1990. She reminded him that I've never been convicted of any crime. She added that it had been almost two weeks since other prisoners had been released on daily, on daily basis pursuant to the Ansali Peace Agreement. She was wondering why I had not been released. Without looking at her face, he replied that she should just wait until the decision would be made to let me go home. His attitude and his body language, as well as his answer, made Alphonsine very uncomfortable. She fired back and told him the following, I want to remind you that we are also human beings, and we have feelings just like you. The general prosecutor was taken aback by these words. He did not expect these strong words to come from a young, short, skinny, very beautiful, but very determined young girl. He looked like somebody who was just waking up from a deep sleep. After a deep breath, he called his staff and asked them the status of my file. After a while, his staff office called him back, and they talked for a little while. After their conversation, he looked at Alphonsine's face and told her that she should not worry and that he would send his man to her very soon. After this exchange, Alphonsine thanked him and left the office. Less than a week later, Alphonsine's gamble clearly paid off. Indeed, on Monday, April 8, 1991, around 5 p.m., the announcer called a number of names of individuals to be released that day. Fortunately, my name was on that list. Frankly, I couldn't believe what I was hearing and seeing around me. It was overwhelming. I gave my prison suit and other personal items to my fellow prisoners who were staying behind. After we left our dormitories, we were assembled in the prison's hall before we were led to the main office. I remember we were between five and eight people. After we completed some required formalities and signed a lot of paperwork, we were given a document called Billet de, de l'Agissement. This is a document proving that we had been officially released from prison. Okay. Right. So just to you know, start things off a little bit, um, this one has some striking similarities and some striking differences, right? And we begin with another period of waiting, right? And here the, the waiting is kind of... Uh, the instability has to do with the fact that uh, he's still waiting while others are being released. Um, and then we have, you know, the two middle part of it where we have the story of Alphonsine making the case for him and then we return to him um, uh, at the end. And, and at the end we also have the resolution in terms of the release um, and uh, here, I think a lot of emotion uh, being expressed, uh, you know, unlike at the very end of the um, waiting to be arrested one. Um, 
So with that sort of general idea in mind, uh, what do you want to what do you want to hone home in on? Well, I think it's it's here very exactly what you're talking about. I think it's very interesting to see how this waiting narrative um, moves back and forth between action, and there's not very much action when you're waiting, and emotion. Mm-hmm. And the the action is often things that are not happening. So that so we have descriptions of what doesn't happen, right. not being released, watching other people be released being worried about the reasons for the delay. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then we have uh, the other, other comments that are specific to time. It had been more than a week. Mm-hmm. It starts off. It had been right. more than a week. So why a week? You know, why, you know, we're wondering why is that so important? Um, but then I think... Um, w- what it does is it accentuates the distress and worry that maybe he won't be released. Right, 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 yes. And then something like every day that passed by, I was concerned about the reasons behind the delay. It's very similar to what we were getting in the first half of the uh, the, the previous narrative, right? right, about, well, this is what the day is like, right? Uh, right. Or, you know, the, the, what Jeanette, again, what Jeanette calls the iterative, right? Right. The, uh, um, this thing happens many times, and I'm going to tell it once. Um yeah, uh, and then also here he is very upfront about his the emotional thing. I was going through a very unbearable situation, right? right. And then the relationship of that to, you know, what we were talking about before a little bit in terms of what you know and what you don't know, right? I was in no position to know what was going on. Exactly. He, I think the key here is what you don't know. Yeah. And I should tell everyone who's listening that I, the part that I left out of this is a very detailed description of his bodily difficulties of terrible things that had happened mm-hmm. to him. And I decided that there was um, it wasn't warranted in this podcast. We could talk about that more if you like. But I decided that it wasn't warranted to disclose those or describe uh-huh. those. So I'm just telling you that they're there yeah. um, because they're part of waiting. So waiting in a state of um, malnutrition uh-huh. and pain yeah. is part of it. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But, but you're right. I think that the key here is who knows what, and that's why we have to shift to Alphonsine yeah. in this narrative. Because otherwise, all we have is, I didn't get released, I didn't get released, right. I had no idea why. I was in no position. Right. I was in no position. Right. I got released. Right. Right, great. Okay, and then in that, what's what's really striking to me, anyway, is that he, in the first paragraph there, I was in no position. He's very much, you know, reconstructing his perspective at the time then, of, 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 that's the, right. of the action, right? That's right. And then when we get Alphonsine, and we realize, well, this is his version of Alphonsine. He's He's got to be speaking from, you know, knowledge that he has acquired from her, presumably, right. uh, somehow, right? And and it's almost like uh, these two paragraphs, we have a whole different kind of narration, right? Exactly. We have, we have like a, a, a kind of an omniscient uh, narrator with, the, uh, you know, authority, the privilege to give inside views. Right. Not not only of Al Fatsin, but also of, you know, the guard, right? Right. The, the prosecutor general. It's really, you know, quite remarkable. Um and and so you know the the, the questions of um, 
obviously questions of knowledge, but also the questions of when does he know, and then right. you know how does that come through in the in the telling, right? And how he positions Alphonsine. Yeah, go ahead. You know, without Alphonsine, he might not have been freed then. Absolutely, right. right. And so, right. And, and Alphonsine, who is now his wife of many years, um, is the rescuer. Right. And that's where the action comes in the waiting to be released. He's waiting, and she's acting. She's acting. Right. 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 Yeah. What's interesting here, um, also something I want to bring up from later in the narrative. It's too much later for me to have connected it. But after he gets released, um, he's in terrible physical shape. And so a lot of it is about being able to eat or not or sleeping and not. But then um, it's about telling the story. Everyone wants to hear what happened to him. Uh And he tells it for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks of everyone needing to hear the story over and over Uh again. And he tells it and tells it until everyone has heard it. And so there's this sense of duration and exhaustion Uh and um, saturation, really. Uh So the saturation of knowledge that people, of knowledge that people want later, is fascinating in relation to this absolute lack of knowledge at this point. Okay. Yeah. Right. Great. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a couple other things in the, in the, you know, narration of uh, Alphonsine's uh, action um, that kind of stand out. So the the whole thing about um, looking, right? So without looking at her face, the right. general prosecutor replied, she should just wait, right? And then the relationship between that and and then her direct speech. So we get a summary of what he says and then... We we get her we actual get her actual, actual words. words yes. I want to remind you, and then it's not just words; it's yes. a proclamation. Yes, great. So we have Alphonsine making a proclamation, and it isn't even that dramatic a, a proclamation. I mean, we, the listener, don't need to be convinced of this. Right. It's a it's an obvious proclamation. We are human beings. Right. I mean, and we're maybe at the moment surprised that this that this general prosecutor would be persuaded by that. Mm -hmm. But in the narrative, he is, right? right? So he's taken aback by these words. And... And he's taken aback by 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 these strong words that come from a young, short, skinny, very beautiful, but very determined young girl. Right. So she's being positioned as this completely powerless person who speaks these truths uh-huh. that are very important to Charles, right? Right. These are the truths that set him free. Right. And she is the one to say them. Right, right. And he is taken aback. Right. Which yeah. is an interesting positioning. Right, right. And it tells us a lot about the occasion, right? That that this is a bold thing for her to say. Right. You know, and he later calls, talks about it as a gamble. That's right? right. Because, you know, maybe the other, uh, you know, response would be, well, he's not getting out of here. You, you, you know, he's right. connected to you, You this impertinent, you know, exactly. young woman. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but again, again, I think it's very effective that we get we get her voice. Um, and then we also get the, you know, the narration of how he responds. It's a, a kind of internal focalization from the general prosecutor, which you know, right. epistemologically, really, we don't. Well, and we also have Alphonsine has to be the one who says to herself, 
he looked like somebody who was just waking yeah. up from a deep sleep. And that follows the description of her, which is not her sense of herself. It's the prosecutor's sense of her. Right. 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 So we have the right. prosecutor seeing her right. as this yep. skinny, beautiful, young, short yep. right. girl. Girl. And right. she's a girl, right? Yeah. She's very I young. That's what he calls it. Yeah. And, right. and then it's we. It's the prosecutor. It's also, I mean, the other thing, I think, you know, technically, right. But it's also um, Charles. Who's describing her this way, right? Right. I mean, you know, that he's trying to highlight what it was like for uh, the prosecutor to hear this from Alphonsine. Right. 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 Um, So, yeah. I didn't get a chance to ask Charles this before sending, before I sent it to you, but I think that that when he says he would send, I think it should be. He would send her man to okay, her very yeah, soon. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And so I need yeah. to ask Charles, because we often have, between the French and the English, we, we get okay. caught up in some yeah. of our pronouns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there is a, a sort of logic for it. it to be it's her. probably her man, yeah. right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But then the other thing that I sort of started with this is right the, the beginning we have without looking at her face, and then after their conversation, he looked at Alphonsine's face, right? Right, right. So this is another um, sort of consequence of... The f- we can see the force of what right. her declaration. Right. right, and we wonder about how he heard this from her, right? Right, right. Because this is presented um, not as Alphonsine saying it, right, but as him knowing it. Right, right. It's back to the omniscient uh, kind right. of thing. Right, right. Something he knows today. Right, right. Or, or he's, you know... He learned it once he got out. Yeah, but, or even then or he's, 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 he's saying it or, must have been this way. Right? That's right. This, this, it must this, have been this way. If you um, imagine um, the general prosecutor and you imagine this young girl, right. this is what it must have been like. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right, right. Um, but I think what's interesting about that is that it doesn't affect, I mean, if we, we get to, you know, I think when you first read it, you just take it, right? Right. But then you can start to interrogate it and then you say, well, wait a minute, how does he know and so on. But it does. I don't think it, it. It finally influences the idea that, you know, this is this is referential, right? That he's making, he's telling his his story and Alphonsine's role in his story. Right. Right. That's what it, it's about positioning, and that's yeah. that's what interests me, is the way that, or I said earlier on, I called it footing. Yeah. So I think I think the footing is very important for the story to be tellable in the present. Mm-hmm. So in the present, it's very important that Alphonsine be the rescuer. Mm -hmm. It's very important that this general prosecutor be called to his senses. And that the rescue occur because she's willing to say this bold statement. All of that is the kind of positioning that sets, that that states the truth when there's been so much falsehood. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. as she says, remember we have her saying also, that um, th- that he didn't commit a crime. Yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 She reminded him that I have never been convicted of any crime. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's her. I think it's. I think that's about. That's not about the information. Yeah. We already know that, right? We yeah. know that from earlier in the story. That's about the. Setting things straight, yeah. changing the footing, so that Charles leaves prison as somebody who was wrongly put there, right, and yeah. um, and is 
set to go forward with things somewhat set straight. Right. Now, is there, can you say, you shed any light on the fact that, um, you know, the general prosecutor actually agreed to see her, right? Or, or the, you know, Alphonsine says, you know, I don't want to see the assistant, basically. I right. want to see the general prosecutor, and he agrees. Is there any kind of... Yeah, you know, I don't know enough about... about, about that, we, I yeah. could ask Charles, but I don't know enough about the bureaucracy. Yeah. My guess, it's just a guess, is that it's a matter of status, that uh-huh. she's a, a woman of enough status to okay. do that. Yeah. Okay. She's also an educated woman, uh-huh. so my, that's my guess. Okay, yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. Okay, well then let me, let's look at the end again, and I, I mentioned before about there's an interesting, I think, contrast between um, um, the kind of uh, you know expression of emotion that we get here uh, as opposed to the end of the um, waiting to be arrested narrative. Um, So, uh, fortunately, my name was on that list. Frankly, I couldn't believe what I was hearing and seeing around me. It was overwhelming. I gave my prison suit and other personal items to my fellow prisoners who were staying behind. I think all those sentences are... Yeah, I think well I think what we have there is another kind of emotion that we haven't had well maybe you could argue that we've had it before but I think that this iteration of the things that happened is ritualistic. Uh-huh. So this is the ritualistic parting from the prison. And that's why we have the giving of the specific specificity of giving the okay. things to the other prisoners whereas being beaten in jail was not ritualized. Uh-huh. That's not a ritualistic. Some of the um, earlier part in the narrative is, um, you know, uh, who, who is Charles Rutanesha? That's a ritualized um, performance yeah. of the uh-huh. arrest, uh-huh. Right. which he also um, is then describing in that ritualized way. And that's why we get some of these general statements. You would okay. this, you would uh-huh. that. I think we're looking at, rit- we think we're hearing details, yeah. but we're actually hearing ritualized behavior. Being, being carried out. Yeah. And yeah. and then some of the time we get this interruption of the ritual with the, with the deeply personal. Okay. So here, um, I couldn't believe what I was hearing and seeing around me, it was overwhelming. My sense of that is Charles really doesn't have any more words for that. Okay. And that when we talk about waiting and mm. narratives of waiting, there really are things that are hard to narrate. Uh-huh. And so the only way to narrate them can be the minute day after day, this is what yeah. we did. Right. But that doesn't get to the emotion. Right. And it's difficult to convey, I think, in words, mm. the narrative yeah. of of waiting, being released, finally going out. Yeah. The narrative goes on quite a bit after this, um, but it's, but even in the parts after this that we're not reading today, a lot of it keeps going back to detail, because it's so hard to narrate uh-huh. the overwhelming sense. The only the, the one thing I could point to that is somewhat emotional is that he wasn't able to sleep in a bed for a long time, uh-huh. had to sleep on the floor, and and he's a person of means. This isn't a person who is accustomed to sleeping yeah, on the yeah. floor before he went to prison. So uh, the, the, the feeling of, of not being quite human. Uh-huh. How do you narrate yeah. not being, feeling like you have been treated as inhuman, not human, not feeling like you are human, yeah. having 
day-to-day survival, which is not even only just getting food, but really day-to-day, minute-to-minute survival um, as the only narratable experience, because how do you narrate not being human? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I think maybe, you know, what I'm reacting to is the fact that there is this expression of, of emotion. Yes. But you're, I think, nicely pointing out that it's not... You know, it's, it's not very it's, elaborate. It's not very elaborate. It's it's general, right? I can't believe it. it's, it's not. It's I cried. It's not. I yeah. I I went to my knees. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Right. You know, right. none of the things that might be um, showing us yeah. the, the, the deep emotion. It's it's about it. complete uh, disassociation in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was and overwhelming. It, it, I yeah. I couldn't believe. I think when he says I couldn't believe what I was hearing and seeing around me, yeah. I think that's pretty literal. Yeah. Right, okay. that's not just a, in, a yeah, yeah. general... Yeah, yeah, hyperbole kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, no, good. Yeah, and then I think um, one of the last things I want to get to is the way in which we end in the present tense. Right, right. right. So th- this is a document proving that we had been officially released from prison, right? And, uh, um, you know, the... the, the so the, there's this kind of jump from the time of the action to the time of the telling uh, in that in that tense shift. That's right. Which is, which right. is kind of interesting, I think. And, right. And then there's a, it's almost like a, a kind of reaffirmation of... It's also this. stepping outside the narrative. So it's like a coda. Yeah. So it's really speaking to us. Yeah. It's, it's even maybe speaking to me since I was the listener. Okay. Right. Yeah. Saying, yeah. I'm telling you, you, what this, you know, this is what... Yeah. This is what that document is yeah. in the present. Yeah. I'm speaking, so I think that shift to the present at that moment is also interactive. Okay, and it's a shift in speaking to me. Yeah, yeah. Because there's the interactive dimension of all of this that we have to imagine all the time. It's a very interactive text, you know, where we have mm-hmm. um, all of the players, you know, him and his uh, and the people who are going to maybe arrest him and and Alphonsine and the prosecutor. Th- so we have the interaction within the text, uh-huh, right. but also I think Charles is speaking to us and yeah. speaking maybe to, 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 to you, to you others as a stand-in, right, yeah, right, 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 yeah, right. Good, good. Okay. And his audience is probably not. I'm I'm not Rwandan. For those who are listening, um, it's probably more Rwandans and other people who've experienced what he's experienced, or people who want to know about it. And then people like me. So uh-huh. I think there's a closer okay. audience, and I'm the vehicle yeah. okay. to it. Yeah, that's, that's helpful, too. Right. Okay, terrific. Um, anything, final comments? Um, well, I, I, I'll just say, I just want to refer back to what I said at the very beginning, which is that this kind of narrative, the narrative of waiting, is very different than narratives of flight, yes. escape, okay. c- and capture. Um, and that... You know, to return to that, there only being two kinds of yeah. narratives: <laughs> right. the the journey, um, the the journey, or the stranger comes to town. I think there are um, other chronotopes, that is, other narratives that have a complex relationship of of space, space and, and time, time. Right. that are genres that we recognize, and that the templates then come in part as false as they often are. They come from that recognition of the genre. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amy. This was really enlightening, I think, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. I loved your comments. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening um, and to say that uh, we welcome feedback. 
to the Project Narrative Twitter account, which is at PN Ohio State. Also, feedback to our email address, projectnarrative at osu.edu, or to our Project Narrative Facebook page. I also want to invite you to our March, March podcast featuring our colleague Karen Winstead, uh, who will be discussing a narrative yet to be determined. Thank you all. Mm-hmm.